Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Lauren Strawn. She holds a master's degree in speech language pathology from the University of Memphis, an advanced certificate in pediatric dysphagia from New York Medical College. She is a SOFFI certified and level two SOS provider. Lauren works for Jefferson Parish Public Schools, the Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and Louisiana Early Steps. Her clinical interests include assessment and treatment of children with complex medical histories, low incidence diagnoses, early intervention, and sensory-based feeding disorders. Her favorite treatment setting is home health. Outside of the SLP world, Lauren enjoys cooking, home decorating, and spending time with her family and pets, husband Norwood, seven-month-old daughter Corinne, her Labrador Magnolia, and her cats Gracie and Baloo and horse Bailey. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Lauren. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. So my name is Lauren Strawn, and I am a pediatric speech and language pathologist. I live in New Orleans, born and raised, and um, I work everywhere. So my primary job is in the public school system, and then I also work PRN at our children's hospital, and I do early steps, which is our state early intervention program. Um, I specialize in pediatric feeding and dysphagia. Um, and then also in school, I'm on our AAC team. So oh, awesome. um, every, yep, everywhere, um, I had a baby in May, little Corinne. She's great. Um, I have a husband. I have a lab and two cats and a fish tank. So uh, my house is a zoo. All the things. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All the things. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so looking forward to talking with you today. I know there's 
a lot that we can dive into, but yeah, I guess where do you want to start? I guess kind of the first thing I would like to talk about a little bit is um kind of this false dichotomy of like the medical SLP versus the school SLP. I dabble in both worlds, I guess. And what I have found, so in our school district, we, um, we're starting a feeding team right now, a, a safe swallow team is what we're calling it. So a dysphagia team basically. And one of the big roadblocks we've encountered a lot is this idea that swallowing is a, you know, air quotes, medical thing. And we're a school, we're school SLPs. And we've kind of gone round and round with this where, you know, I, I keep saying we all have the same degree. And of course there are certain people that you'll have more experience in certain settings. And we certainly wouldn't want to take a person who has no idea what they're doing and say, here, go treat this child's dysphagia, just as we would not take an SLP who has only done adult dysphagia and say, here, treat this child's fluency disorder. You know, it goes both ways. But I think there's a lot of mis misconceptions and misunderstanding about that. And it really has been kind of a roadblock for us because what's happened is we have these professionals who work in the district right here that are licensed, trained, ready to go and do this. And we're kind of, um, I don't want to say ignored, but there isn't re- they don't realize that that's what we can do. So this, the feeding is kind of getting pushed off to nursing and pushed off to OT and pushed off to the random teacher that, and all of those people are like, Oh my gosh, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And then, you know, we come in and I'm like, well, kind of off the record do this, <laughs> um, which is not really okay. So I, I would like to kind of dispel the myth of the medical SLP. So, you know, I, I think that the, like I said, the, the myth of the school SLP versus the medical SLP, that, that's not really a thing. So that's, I guess, my first yeah, thing. Yeah, no, I'm excited to dive into this because I think I, I'm excited for you to enlighten me and educate me because I've been beating this drum for so long that we are <laughs> right. drastically different. But I say that in, with the caveat that I've changed my perspective over the years too. I, I think, you know, I firmly, I stood really hard in this, on this soapbox for a few years. And then I ended up having my son that had severe special needs. And now I see sort of his medically complex needs and how they're navigating them in the school system. And I very much understand what you're saying. And, you know, we have a dear friend, Kristen West, that works for the collective too. And she, this is sort of her soapbox too, is, is how do we, handle these medically complex children in the schools and navigate things like that. So my, my worlds have totally collided and I've definitely changed my perspective on this too. And so that's why I'm really excited for, for you to talk to us about it a little more. Yeah. Um, I've actually talked to Kristen yeah, awesome. before too. She's great. Um, when we were trying to get this going, I was like, how, cause they do it, you know, where she works. And I'm like, how do you get people on board? So yeah, like he says, I, I'm on our AAC team. So I see everyone is, severe, a lot of complex, a lot of low incidence diagnoses. So a lot of kids with dysphagia or other, you know, feeding problems, not necessarily a pharyngeal dysphagia, but yeah, it's, I mean, we have a lot of kids that really need a lot of help and it's kind of been, I don't want to say ignored, but, but kind of ignored because no one knows what to do except for the people who do know what to do, who they just see us as, oh, you're the girl that does R. Yeah. Um, and so I think just change, like shifting the perspective on that is so important. And, you know, we, we were having a big meeting a few weeks ago and, you know, I kind of maybe was a little aggressive with it, but I was kind of like, you know, guys, we have, you know, classroom pair professionals, cathing kids, doing G-tube feedings, administering diazepam, giving seizure medications, like things that are way more of a medical procedure than eating yeah. lunch. Yeah. Eating, that's not a medical procedure, but this kid does need to be safe and what's happening is not safe. You know, and there's a lot of fear about, um, like liability. That's what I would say. Oh, liability. We don't want to have liability. We don't want to be liable. 
Well, we already feed everybody breakfast and lunch every day. So the liability is already there. You know, you're much more at risk for being sued and losing when the child has a known problem and you do nothing about it versus when you take your professional who has a license and this is very much in their scope of practice. And I personally have an advanced certification, but every SLP, you know, who's graduated in the last 30 years about this is in their scope of practice. So the liability is in not treating versus treating. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you, cause I know this probably goes against what you want to talk about, but were you a school SLP that ventured into working with more medically complex kids or were you working in medical settings and then ventured towards the schools? No, this is actually exactly part of what awesome. I was talking okay. about. So good. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. So I, um, backstory on Lauren's life. Um, Lauren maybe wanted, well, first Lauren wanted to be a vet because see all my animals. All my vets talked me out of that. Everyone said, if you want to be a vet because you like animals, don't be a vet. So nix that. Um, then Lauren maybe wanted to be a doctor. Um, the medical school is very expensive. <laughs> so as I'm floundering around, I stumbled upon communication disorders that um, in full disclosure I took because it seemed sort of interesting and I could probably make an A in it while I figured my life out. Um, loved it. And now here I am. I always really liked English and science. So this was such a great fit for me, which I... I didn't really realize until I was deep in it. Um, but I always liked the more medical aspect. I always saw myself working in a hospital. Then coming out and in grad school, I was, I went to the University of Memphis. I was so blessed and lucky to do a clinic at St. Jude, which was oh, awesome. just an amazing, yes, such a good experience. Loved it. And, um, also some things with Le Bonner, which is their children's hospital that's very affiliated with St. Jude. Most of the kids have their surgeries and things at Le Bonner. They're around the corner from each other. Um, so I always wanted, I saw myself always working in a medical setting. Then it came time to come home and everyone, you know, panics about having a CF and you're not going to get a job. So you just take what you can get basically. Um, and so that's how I ended up in the schools. I did my CF in the schools kind of with the intention of I'm going to get my C's and then I can move on to the hospital, which proved to be a lot harder than I thought it would be. So I, that would be a little sidebar of advice. If you really, really want to work in a hospital, I would really try to get a CF in hospital because um, it was it was hard. I've, I've really had to pave my own path for doing this. But so I worked in schools for a while, still always really liked the more medical, like, you know, more medically complex kids. So I, I the school I was at was um, high special ed population. So I did get, you know, a taste of that. But I really still, you know, wanted more of that hospital experience. So then I went and worked at outpatient for our children's hospital, took a full-time job there. And with the intention of transitioning to inpatient, which never really came to fruition, but I was doing some outpatient modifieds and some feeding. And that's when I sort of rediscovered how much I loved feeding. Um, I did a little bit in grad school and I loved it, which I didn't even know SLPs did until I was in grad school. So that was, so that kind of like reignited my, like, Oh, I really like this. I really like this feeding. And you know, when the inpatient thing wasn't really working out, I was like, you know, I'm going to go more of the, the feeding route versus the dysphagia route. And so I decided to come back to the school's, because there was a lot of continuing ed that I wanted to do. And just with my schedule at the hospital full-time, there, there just wasn't time to like work full-time and do all this continuing ed and sleep. So um, I went back to the school so that I could kind of pursue this continuing ed. Cause I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to, I want to be really good at it. You know, I don't want to sort of know what I'm doing, which is what I was kind of felt like I was doing at the schools and, or when I was in the hospital rather. So um, then I, you know, did a bunch of CEUs and stuff, started working, my early steps, like my early intervention kids. So you can, the nice thing about the schools is you, you can have time to do something on the side. And so with that, I only take 
feeding kids. And I stayed on PRN at Children's only taking feeding kids. So I think I was kind of able to mesh the best of both worlds. But um, I very much kind of stumbled upon it. I'm always curious and interested in how people's career paths navigate and wind. And I think I think it's inspiring to other people to learn to know, too, that, like, you don't have to stay where you are if you feel stuck or you don't feel like this is where you need to be. That there's so many cool places that we can go in our in our career. So, yeah, absolutely. When I was, you know, for a while, I was pretty kind of discouraged about it. Like, you know, kind of just wasn't working out the way I wanted. I, I even entertained, like, do I, should I go back to vet school? Like, should I be a vet and just stop being an FLP? Um, but that doesn't really make sense financially. And so I be like, you know, I was like, I really like this feeding thing and not a lot of people do it. And I really, like, I love it. I'm so passionate about it. So you can really, it's been, it's been hard. It's been a long road, but you can, you know, carve out what you love basically. And now I, you know, I tell, when I take grad students, I'm like, look, this is the way to go. I love my career. I think I have a great, I have a great job, a great life. <laughs> um, Good. I love that. Yeah. So also as a little background, I did dabble in adult home health for a little while as well. Um, so I do have some adult experience and obviously, um, in grad school, we learned mostly about adults. Um, Deborah Suter actually taught oh, my dissertation class. Oh, so you had a wonderful education. Yes. Good. Good. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Um, so, so good. Like she's brilliant. I love her. She's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. But so a lot of grad schools, at least mine and people that I know have gone to grad school, the emphasis, your dysphagia class really is about adults. It's about pharyngeal dysphagia. I think now they are maybe starting to get more toward that MBS IMP model. When I was in school, we were still just talking about, you know, like the oral, the pharyngeal esophageal phases. I, I hope that now schools are kind of shifting to the 17 impairments. But anyway, it's, it's very much neurological, like, you know, neuromuscular. We talk a lot about that and which babies certainly can have pharyngeal dysphagia in that, you know, the way we might see in an adult, you know, who's had a stroke perhaps or some kind of Parkinson's or whatever. But a lot of babies and kids, the dysphagia is not necessarily a, a pharyngeal impairment. It's the um, culmination of a lot of other systems not functioning efficiently or properly. So a lot of our, a lot of kids I see um, are premature babies, are cardiac babies, babies with, you know, cardiopulmonary disorders in general. So a lot of the problem is really breathing. And, you know, without going into too, too much, um, if you like this, you need to go, go research how breathing and all that works. But, um, you know, basically we have to obviously hold our breath to swallow. And when you're a baby or a person who's, you know, at baseline, you're not breathing great. You're not oxygenated very well. Holding your breath is not going to super work out. Um, cause you're just going to get less, you're more hypoxic. So, for a lot of our babies, it's helping them learn to manage that suck, swallow, breathe sequence, which certainly um, infant babies are not going to do like your swallow exercises, right? I don't do any type of like vital stem or anything. There are pediatric applications. Um, I just personally don't really feel that good about it. For I just don't think it's appropriate for the vast majority of the kids I see. That's certainly not appropriate for like a baby in the NICU. So, you know, they're not really going to do of exercise program the way you might see with an adult. So it's a lot more of how can you help them? What interventions can we provide to help them improve that suck, swallow, breathe coordination? That's kind of a main thing that we see. And then also your general sucking ability. And whereas, you know, in adults, again, it's, you're typically going to see more of like a um, neurological or physical impairment with babies. It's a lot more systemic. So it's really important to understand how the, how the whole body is working together, um, which certainly for adults, I mean, that, that applies as well. But I think not, it's not quite as, as crucial, you know, 
And then the other thing we get into a lot is I see a lot of feeding where the kids don't necessarily have a physical chewing and swallowing problem, but they have all these sensory components, or maybe they do have some oral motor weaknesses where they can chew, but it's not great. Um, Or, you know, we see a lot of babies that have had chronic reflux as a baby or some kind, or they, they weren't, that sucks all breed wasn't coordinated. So they were constantly drowning themselves while they're trying to eat. So they've, they become really aversive and they just learn accidentally that eating is painful, is scary, is hurt, you know, hurts, is exhausting. So they're just not going to do it. Um, or a lot of our kids, you know, we see a lot of kids with autism or other disorders that have sensory integration problems where just food is, is overwhelming from a sensory perspective and it's just too hard. So what do we do with those kids? You know, and those are the kids we get a lot of, oh, they're just a picky eater. You know, there's a lot of really um, false advice going around about there. You know, I'll have pediatricians say, oh, well, just stop feeding him chicken nuggets and he'll eat. He won't starve. And like, he totally will starve. That that absolutely will happen. So, you know, that's another thing that we, we don't typically encounter with adults. You know, adults who have that eating aversion, we're typically going to send to psychiatry, anorexia and bulimia, whereas there are, which certainly anorexia and bulimia can occur in children, but we see a lot of kids that are, it's a sensory motor eating disorder, not, not a, not an ear of feeding disorder, rather not an eating disorder. So a lot of difference between babies and adults and, or children and adults. So I think that's important too, that if you're interested in pediatrics and even if you have a ton of adult experience, which is great and useful, it's not necessarily, oh, you just, just hop right in and vice versa. Like if I were to go try to do adults, I would, I would definitely need some, some brushing up, um, because just you don't see the same diagnoses. Yeah. Typically, I think that's the best way to put it. You just don't see the same diagnoses and same conditions. It's, you know, people will say things like, "Oh, a baby is just a small, big person," or a, you know, adult is just a big, small person, and it's like, no, it's not. Right. Drastically different. Not, a, not so, at all. Yeah. Right. Not, a, not at all. An adult typically is, a, you know, most of our. We do get some adults who are very fragile, but. You know, most of your adults, okay, you like aspirate on your water a little bit, like you cough and like, you'll probably be okay. But for some of these little babies, our most fragile babies that, you know, maybe their lungs are scarred or they were born a billion weeks premature, like really a little bit of aspirating is, is like really bad for them. Like they can't just cough a little bit, like them coughing a little bit might send them into like full-blown respiratory yeah. stress. So yeah, they're definitely not not one in yeah, the same. Yeah. I think I have such a love hate relationship with our field right now in that it's like, we're learning so much about all different conditions and populations. So it's great. It's it's awesome. I, I love just how wide and vast it is. But on the other hand, it's like, crap, there's just so much that we don't know. And there's so much to think about what we used to do wrong or, you know, and I just always say, once you know better, you do better, like my Angelou quote, but it's just, it's tough to sort of let, you know, um, yes, I, I look back at some of like the earliest kids I treated when I first started. I'm like, why did anyone let me touch that baby? Oh my God. What was I doing? Like what was happening? You know, or I have, you know, I can think of one little boy that I, I discharged from therapy because I was like, well, there's nothing to be done. And now I'm like, oh, there was so much I could have done. You know, I say it all the time too, though. I think for, specifically for this, like I think feeding and dysphagia, like I think feeding therapist needs to be its own profession. So I feel like I have done a whole nother degrees worth of continuing ed for this. Um, and I really do think SLP, there should be a, a specialization option, like how medicine does, because we are, like you said, our scope is so big. I don't know how anyone can possibly be excellent at all of those yeah, things. Yeah. Just, um, you know, even the best, most wonderful, smartest SLPs I know. I mean, my goodness, you can't be an expert in 
dysphagia and dysarthria and childhood fluency and language and apraxia and AAC. It's just not, not, and then like also function outside of like, you know, keep a grocery list or something. So yeah, it's a big field. Yeah. I'd like to expand a little bit on sort of the sensory stuff that you brought up. Cause I think that's quote unquote a hot topic right now. Not, not that I mean that it's like controversial or anything, but I think we're, we're finally learning as SLPs how important and critical and crucial it is to what we do and how it impacts feeding and swallowing. And, you know, I know I've, I've experienced this with my son just anecdotally. And there's so many things that I'm like, gosh, I wish I knew so much more about this sensory system because it it is exactly a lot of his struggles too. So yeah, I know you mentioned a little bit before. I'd love if you could expand on that. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So my other, another bit of advice that I have for everyone is if you do not have an OT friend, you need to make one like stat. I don't know how anyone functions in the world without an OT. Um, Sensory, sensory regulation is like the foundation of everything in every type of therapy you do, whether it's feeding therapy, dysphagia, you know, language, whatever. If your body is not comfortable and functioning efficiently, you are not able to learn anything. So um, one of the first feeding courses I did, well, in, when I was in grad school, we did um, a feeding program, a feeding group that was set up through um, LEAD, which is like um, Lebon or an early intervention program. So like a home health thing. And a, a SLP who was my supervisor and an OT ran a group and they did SOS therapy which is um, sequential oral sensory, it's KHME's program. And uh, that, so that was kind of my, my first little, in, you know, intro to feeding it. And it was, it was so great. We made, uh, the kids made so much progress. It was wonderful. So when I was like, all right, this is what I'm really going to do. The first big course I did was SOS. I, had, I went to Indianapolis and it's a four day course. It's exhausting. Your brain is going to like explode by the end, but it's so good. And the program is designed to be like run concurrently by OT and SLP. And so a big component of it is this integration of all the sensory systems and it just like opens your mind when you think about like how hard eating really really is and um in the course dr toomey talks about these myths about eating and one of them is you know that eating is easy right you just you put the food in your mouth you chew it and you swallow it well your eating is the only human behavior we do that has to integrate all of our sensory systems so you think about it, if you're a little guy who is very um we'll just say visually over responsive Okay, so when you look at something, your visual system has a big, big reaction. Actually, let's instead of vision, let's use smell because we're eating. That makes more sense. So you and I, who have a typically, you know, functioning neurologic system, we smell something and say it's a big smell, like a pickle. You know, we're like, oh, that's a big smell, and pretty quickly our brains and our body adapt to that. So we we can okay, we've smelled the pickle. Next, we can move on. We can pay attention to something else. But if you're a child who's um, olfactory system is malfunctioning. So you're over responsive. You smell that pickle and like, oh my gosh, you're going to maybe jump out of your chair. Um, maybe you're going to vomit. Maybe you're going to gag because your body is just like, whoa, that's a lot. And then you might have a hard time coming down from that. So all you can pay attention to is this overwhelming smell of a pickle and probably you're disgusted by it. Um, that's typically how it goes. And it's really hard for you to learn anything else because all your your body can pay attention to is like this disgusting smelling pickle, you know. Or I think about I, I use the example a lot of like think about if you have like a little rock in your shoe, right? And you're you're sitting in a lecture and you're trying to pay attention to this lecture and they're teaching you something that's really hard for you. You're trying to learn Russian and you're and you're not from Russia. You don't speak Russian. And this rock is in your shoe and all you can think about is like, gosh, this rock it, it in my shoe it hurts. Like it's well, you know it's it's rubbing on my heel. It's uncomfortable. 
Like that, that's all you're not going to be very successful in learning Russian because you're busy worrying about the rock in your foot. Right. And that's kind of what happens with these kids with sensory integration problems is that it's very hard for them to, to learn anything else when something is not right in their body. Their body is not comfortable. And so what happens a lot specifically with our autistic kids is they also tend to be microscopic learners, right? So they learn as a whole. So for example, goldfish crackers, a lot of kids like goldfish crackers, right? But for some of our kids, you break off the tail of that goldfish cracker. Well, now from a visual perspective, it looks different, right? And they don't know what it is because they have learned that a goldfish cracker, you know, has a tail with the two points and is orange. Sometimes our kids even learn and it is served on, you know, my Mickey Mouse plate or whatever. And if you change anything about that, they, they have no idea what it is. So that's, that's really overwhelming to them. Um, and a lot of our kids with autism have sensory processing problems, although other kids without autism can also have that. That's something I think is overlooked a lot that you don't have to have an autism diagnosis in order to have sensory processing in deficits. So learning how to recognize or first, I think anticipate what is going to be, you know, a sensory potential issue for this child. So it's really helpful if you know your clients and you know, okay, this child is really over responsive to smell. So when I'm going to bring out pickles, I'm going to put that pickle in a plastic bag and I'm going to show him. I'm going to present it in a plastic bag. That's going to dampen the smell a little bit. And then we want to help our kids learn to problem solve, right? We don't want to just expect that all through life pickles will always be in a plastic bag because that's not real. So what I'm going to you know, help them learn is, okay, look, I can open the plastic bag. I'll you know show them. And then, oh, if that's a big smell and you can see they'll, they'll turn white, they might gag, they'll back up. Um, it, it'll be pretty obvious that this is getting too hard. Oh, look, you can close the bag and show them. So now you've taught them a sensory based problem solving strategy. And you can, of course, apply that across all the senses. So a lot of our kids really don't like crumbs on their hands or things on their hands. I don't like, I don't like like lotion on my hands. So we're going to have, um, like a wet rag at our station and we can teach them, okay, when I get something in my hands, I can wipe them off or I can ask for help or I can ask for a wipe. So we're going to give this problem solving strategy so that they can continue on and eat. I love it. Thank you. Those were, uh, those were great explanations, Lauren. I, yeah, you definitely taught me something there. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. Sensory is such a gosh, like I, I could, I could, I, I also, I joked you, I should have been an OT. Um, Cause it's so, it just really lays the foundation for like everything yeah, in yeah. life. And so much, even not just in feeding, but in my, you know, language therapy, when I have a child that's air quotes, freaking out, you know, like it's, it's no helpful. Now I start going to, okay, let's look at this environment. Like what's happening. Let's turn the lights down. Let's turn the Promethean board off. Okay. This other child is screaming and banging blocks. Let's see if we can alleviate that. Let's, does he need to go to the bathroom? Has he had a drink of water recently? You know, and try to go through all these potential sensory things. And really once you can manage that and help help them learn eventually how to manage the environment themselves. Like you see such a decrease in unwanted behaviors and, and not just unwanted behaviors. Like it's another kind of aside, but it's not just about behaviors. Like these poor children are in yeah, distress. Yeah. <laughs> like I, you don't want to live in a body that is constantly uncomfortable and in pain and all you can like, it's loud and it's bright and it smells weird. So like everything just goes better when the sensory systems are regulated. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you for that. I, you know? It was something that I was not, anticipating navigating with my son and and we found just the most wonderful OT that specialized in sensory. And she just told me all this stuff. And I was like, I had no idea. Like I felt horrible. I had no idea all these things were like, like exactly how you just explained. And so it's just been, yeah, she's been a godsend to our family because the way that she's just come up with different solutions to help him regulate and things like he's a, I can't think of what word she uses, but he loves to touch like very 
it, like bumpy things. He's just a sensory seeker. Mm-hmm. So sort of like learning exactly. that about him has just been so fascinating and just like buying him things for Christmas like that. It was just like, he just loves all that stuff and it just helps him keep him calmer. So. Right. Something else I think is important to touch on too. We, you know, especially with our kids with autism, we, we always think of sensory as like the kid that's running around and banging their head on the wall and, you know, hitting things, but it also goes the other way, right? You have kids that are under responsive. And so with the application to eating, what you get a lot, um, those are kids that, you know, food's falling out their mouth. They're kind of just low interest in eating. They're not aware. Um, and a lot of those times, it's the opposite problem where their body needs more input. So that's the kid that might really like that pickle where, you know, you give him mashed potatoes. He can't really even taste it. That that's so low level of input, but you give that same child a wasabi pea and they love it. And all of a sudden, cause they're like, Oh, there's something in my mouth. There it is. So I have a lot, a lot of kids that I'll give, like I said, we'll do pickles. We'll do wasabi peas, mustard. I live in South Louisiana. So like garlic, onions, you know, things that you, that, aren't like, you know, air quotes, kid food, but really all of a sudden this child's like, oh, so, you know, Cheerios are not, they're too low input. They have no idea there's a Cheerio in their mouth. And that obviously puts you, you know, at a choking and aspiration risk if you have no idea what food is in your mouth. But then when you give them something they can feel and notice and process, then poof, improvement. Yeah. I, I love that you said that because my son definitely loves like the spicier, more pungent, like lasagna but that has like sausage and like really spicy stuff the kid loves and we we went through it's sort of this tough balance between what does he love that he can tolerate and what doesn't set his reflux off so like there's a fine line between how much lasagna and sausage this kid can eat before he ends up like refluxing and puking it all so that's that's a really fun you know (laughs) fun balance to manage but yeah that's it's also fascinating it's just Stuff I feel like I never learned about, like in grad school or even just when I was, you know, just a new grad working with kids. I never understood this impact of sensory until I went through it with my own kids. So I'm so glad that it's something we're all learning about now. It's just, it's, it's so valuable. So thank you. Yes. And it just, it, it's so all encompassing. Like you said, you know, you're not eating so much. Like that's something you don't think about. That kid is, you know, shoving goldfish down his throat like there's no tomorrow because he has no idea that he's full, can't feel it. You know, that, that interoception, this idea of, kind of what your body's doing internally is something we don't really think about, but maybe he's not just, you know, a greedy piglet. Maybe he doesn't know he's full. So helping kids to look, recognize what that feels like before they're vomiting everywhere is important, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. This is great. Um, actually, something I would like to talk about is the, the benefit of home health, seeing people in their home. You know, I kind of started out in the clinic and you know, where typical, they would come to me. I would, you know, we do our little feeding session. They would go home. I'd give them, you know, my best advice. And they might improve for me in the clinic, but then dinner time at home is still a nightmare. Still stressful. We're not eating. Things are not going well. And then when I started doing my early steps, so I was going into people's homes and I had the opportunity to like, okay, now it's dinner time. Let's sit down and eat dinner. Or, okay, let's open your pantry and see what is in your house. You know, what does your family eat? That's when I really started seeing progress. And then when parents were able to like in the moment be like, okay, this is, this is like, it's dinner. This is what's happening. What do I do? That's when I think the help really kicked in, you know, when they started to see some real good quality improvements, Um, especially with little kids. You know, the clinic is useful, I think, when you have a child that really needs to work on some oral motor skills. Like we need to really work on just like your chewing ability, but kind of like with adults, right? The best treatment for swallowing is swallowing. The best treatment for eating is eating. So 
at home, okay, I can say, all right, mom, so you're gonna have a snack tomorrow, you know, or dad or grandma, whoever is at the home. So let's let's look in your pantry. Let's see what's what snacks you have available and kind of see how we can what should we pair together? How can we present this? Because a lot of times it's just a matter of, well, you know, my child won't eat apples, let's just say. But then when I say, okay, well let's show me, show me how that would go. And they take the apple out and they plunk it in front of the kid, here you go. Well, the kid has no idea what to do with this whole apple. So I say, okay, well, let's try to cut it into um, like matchsticks, like kind of the shape of a French fry. And we'll take the skin off and that kid will eat that apple right up. So, you know, he just needed to present it in a way that was one visually more similar to something he knew, French fries, which most kids believe French fries. He needed something easier, right? Because a lot of our kids have motor deficits as well. So holding, like just holding an apple, which is a spherical shape and then biting into it is kind of a, a complicated motor task, kind of a weird sensory experience. Like your teeth, it, it kind of hurts. Like maybe the apple touches your nose. That's stressful. Maybe like it, if it's a really big apple, you probably can't breathe that well. But if we put it into presentable little sticks that you can easily hold, if it gets too overwhelming, you can take it right out of your mouth. So, so much of that being in the home and seeing like how their family dynamic works, I get much better results much faster. And the families are so grateful to you know, finally have a dinner time that isn't stressful. Yeah. You know, or I can, I can look at their seating and say, cause that's, you know, another big thing is making sure we have appropriate seating. You know, we talk about sensory. If you have your little two year old at an adult chair and his little feet are dangling and she's wobbling back and forth, she's spending that whole time just trying to not fall out that chair. So if I can, you know, problem solve, okay, well, let's, we, we could buy a new high chair, but that's expensive. So let's look at the other items that are in your house that we could maybe make her a footrest or we could make her a little some side support so we could swap out a different chair and now it can work better. So helping them problem solve in their own home to see, you know, I don't need to go out and buy a million expensive products. I don't need, you know, to do that. So like, I just need to kind of think of what, what's the end goal here. Okay. I'm trying to example, postural stability for their feet. Okay. What can I do that's in my house? So I think, I think home health really is the ideal setting, which I, you know, is not available to everyone, but I think it really, you get the most bang for your buck and it's the most realistic you know, versus a clinic. Yeah. I have two thoughts on that. I remember I did, I worked in home health. I was starting my mobile fees company. Oh my gosh, it's been 10 years. I just realized I started that 10 years ago. Holy cow. Um, but I was, I was, when I was getting that up and running, I was working for home health agencies and I had no idea how much I would love that. I had no idea how fulfilling that was just working in people's actual home settings and just seeing the carryover like immediately. And so I just, I've always had such a heart for home health. And then to your point, we've had different feeding therapists come in for my son. And it's so interesting because it was all sort of right after, like we had a bunch of feeding therapists right before COVID hit. And then we had to go to teletherapy during COVID. And then after COVID was over, yeah. we could start getting them back in the home again. And it was just so nice to have them see like our natural feeding environment how much of a crazy nut my little three-year-old is in the dynamic, the dog eating the food off his tray, like what me and my husband like to eat, you know? So it's like you get the full yeah. spectrum of what our zoo of a house looks like at mealtimes. And I, mean, I sort of struggled with it because we had one SLP that gave us like this whole list of like do's and don'ts. And I was like, I get this from an SLP's perspective, but like, None of this works with our family dynamic. And I don't want this to be an unnatural thing. I want to sort of meet halfway and see what I'm not opposed to making changes to our family dynamic, but I also don't want it to be so far off. Like, so we came up with just a great plan of things that we could tweak for my son and the things that we also could tweak. And 
make my daughter sit down, like you said, on the other side of the table. So she's not driving him insane. And, and so I, I love that we were able to have them come in and really give us that real time feedback of like, this is what dinner looks like for us. And, and it's not, it, it would not have worked if we just went based off of, you know, their observations of what I was telling them it was like. So I, I think it's so, yeah, it's so invaluable. Yeah. Well, and it's so important to, you know, it's very rare to have a child who has an isolated, feeding disorder with nothing right. else happening. So, you know, a lot of my kids are very medically complex and I tell their parents all the time, like, you know, a lot of my kids, I have one little guy, well, he just aged out. Um, but he had, you know, he had a G tube and he was still taking a bottle at night. That was, you know, he, that was his comfort. He loved that. And the mom was like, you know, I just have so many things. Like I know, I know the bottle needs to go, but there's so many things. And I, and I told her, I was like, you cannot prioritize every single thing at one time. So like, yeah, and you know, when you have cardiac problems, you have breathing problems, brain problems, like being alive is your first priority. We can address this bottle later. So I was like, and you know, he was eating really well, not using only using the G tube for meds. Um, and that was another thing. She was like, I really want the G tube out, but oh, like, you know, I really he fights me on taking the medicine. And I was like, It's fine. Use the G tube for your medicine, get the other parts of your life settled, and then when you're ready, we can totally work on this. So I think, you know, recognizing your patients and their families as like real people, yes. you know, like this mom also has a job that she has to do. Um, yeah. You know, where you can't dedicate every minute of your life to your child's eating. I mean, even if you can like do it, if you, I don't know, have just a money tree in your backyard and you have nothing else to do with your life, like you still don't want to, that's not good for your mental health. <laughs> um, so, you know, recognizing like, okay, what can we do within the realistic parameters of this home to improve this while everyone maintains their sanity? Like you said, if you have another child, well, your other child also needs attention. You know, even if your child does not have a medical diagnosis, I mean, like she's still a, a child that needs her parent to like parent her. So, you know, I think that's a good thing to where you can really see, okay, this is the problem that's, this is the problem they're having. How can we real solve this in a realistic way? You know, versus in the clinic. Well, yeah, it's super easy. I have access to every food I could ever want and I can control everything. But in real life dinner time, you know, what can we do that's actually helpful? And I've, I've had a lot of parents tell me that, you know, you're the first person that like really actually helped because you like, you get it, you know, I think that's so something to think about. And even if you do work in a clinic, even if, if your work setting is a clinic, like not everyone I understand can go to the home, but you know, have those conversations with your parents of like, take, take a video, set, prop your phone up on you know the counter or whatever, and just take a video of dinner, how it naturally happens, bring that and let's see how we can problem solve this in a way that actually can yeah. work. Yeah. Thank you for that. It It, it is tough. Cause I think, you know, with my son, he was just so underweight for so long. And so his meals, he's just, he's got a lot of delays as well. So it takes his meals. He's supposed to eat about four times a day and they take about 45 minutes. So that's, I mean, if you think that's just an hour and a half, three hours a day of someone feeding my son. So whether it's me, my husband, you know, we have wonderful family. We have a wonderful support system that helps out, but like you said, it's a lot. So then there's that on top of him going to school, on top of all of his other therapies, he gets PTOT, gets vision, he gets all these other therapies and all the other therapists give us these home exercise programs too. And like, I just, one day I lost my marbles. Like I was like, there is not enough hours in the day to do everything that his therapists want us to do. Plus live my life, plus take care of another child. Like it was like, I reached my breaking point and I had to just have a conversation with all of the therapists. Like, what can we do? Like, I, I understand this is important, but you have to realize how much stress we're under and also how many other therapists are giving us things to do. 
So what can we do maybe like 10 to 15 minutes, three times a week or something? Like we have to come up with a better strategy to strategize and implement all of it. And I think what was, it was sort of a challenge to put back on the therapist of like, okay, what can we give this family that's the best bang for their buck? And that's really what helped us a lot is just knowing like, okay, all right, on a Saturday, we're going to work on this for a little bit. We're going to work on this for a little bit. We're going to work on this for a little bit, but then he can go watch a movie. Like he is a seven-year-old boy. You know, it's, I don't want the entire day, all day, every day being made up of therapy and tech. All he does is yeah. therapy. Yeah. Right. So, right. Like he's still, I, yeah, I, I'm right. I told a family once to their little boy had autism and, you know, I said, you know, he's allowed to just have an interest because he's a child yeah. and, and human beings have interests. You know, every minute of his day doesn't need to be therapy. And like, if he has an interest, like, yeah, and you can make it therapeutic, that's great. But if he wants to just like watch the garbage truck because he enjoys watching the garbage truck, like, that's fine. <laughs> I scroll Facebook because I like scrolling Facebook, you know, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean now every second of everyone's day is therapized. So that's, like I said, that's not good for anyone's mental health. No one's going to, you know, get better with that. And with the meals and, and eating, you know, like if you have to punt, Dr. Toomey and her course talks about like if it's like just a day that everything is going to chaos and you have to like punt and eat mcdonald's okay and that's what you do and you get back on the train tomorrow it's gonna be fine one day of mcdonald's or goldfish or cheez-its or whatever is or ice cream or nothing yes. it's fine i call them those are our keep the kids alive days yep that's right not the days that like stuff goes crazy with me or my husband i'll have like i'll call my mom and ask her to help out and she's like what do you need me to do i'm like keep the kids alive so that's literally your only job like i don't care what they eat i don't care where you go like keep them alive Right, right. Are you alive at the end of the day? Yes. Success. Good. Right. And we can, everything else can be addressed tomorrow. Yes. It's fine. You know? Sounds awesome, Lauren. I, I love, I love talking with you. I thank you so much that you brought so much valuable tips and yeah, thank you just as a mom for sort of understanding the, the difficulty that, that it can be just navigating the, the feeding and swallowing issues. And yeah, this is awesome. Do you have any, any final thoughts? Anything else you'd want to share? Which is, I was going to say, you know, about being a mom, you know, in her course, Dr. Toomey talks about that. Um, so she's a psychologist. And parents of children who don't eat well, we see stress levels second only to parents of children with cancer. So it is very, very stressful. And I think it's so important to keep that in mind when you're working with these families. Even if you have a child who's more of just like, air quotes, just a picky eater, you know, that's not in any kind of medical danger as far as dying. The parent's brain, what, what is happening if my child doesn't eat, my child will die. Yeah. That is what, and, and like fundamentally that's fact, that's factual. So it's so important to just think about, you know, what is the stress that's happening with these families, uh, you know, around this child and, and as much as you can, how, how can you be cognizant of that and supporting, you know, while supporting their mental health needs, not that you should be their therapist, like their psychiatrist, but you know, think of like that, that plays a role too. Yeah. So like you said, you don't want to pile on too much and you don't, you want to make sure that, if there's a day where, you know, parent did something that maybe wasn't quite what you would recommend as a therapist, like, that's okay. It's all right. Did, did you do the best you could? You sure did? Okay, great. I'm so proud of you for that. And let's, let's do better tomorrow, you know, or let's do different tomorrow. Not even, not even frame it as do better. Like tomorrow, we're going to do it this way and see if that works out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren. I appreciate talking with you so much. You too. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. 
There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.